It's time to continue our discussion of Jesus' emotional openness before his Father in the Garden of Gethsemane and see what he wants to teach us about our own prayer life. Our task in these lessons on the Lord's Prayer has been to try to join the disciples when they ask the Lord Jesus to teach us to pray. What will happen when we are not afraid to have emotional integrity in our prayer life? One of the things I would pray that we would learn as a result of studying the Lord's Prayer together, that we learn to really start praying honestly. I'd like you to start to really think about the emotional integrity of your prayers. And it changes praying. When we start to pray together, and I want to encourage you to realize that there's no special language you need to use in your prayer. Some of you that are afraid to pray with a group of friends, some of you are afraid because, because you're afraid you're going to say the wrong word. You're afraid you're going to say it wrong. And some of us that have known the Lord for a long time, we've learned to use all kinds of jargon. It, it's shop talk with God. And you don't have all that jargon down very well. So you're afraid to really talk to God. You're afraid you'll say the wrong thing. And oh, you will revolutionize our group. If brand new in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you just honestly talk to Him. It'll make it suddenly alive. You see, what Jesus is trying to teach, you see, the, the Gethsemane prayer was not a Hollywood production. It wasn't a script written out. It poured out from the agony of his heart, and he did it three times. You say, well, Dave, why did he do it three times? Because that's the way your emotions work, and a lot of you are really impatient with your emotions. You say, Lord, I talked to you yesterday about the way I feel, and now I need to talk to you today about the way I feel. What's wrong with me? You're a human being. Emotions don't just go away. Your emotions are the product of hundreds of ideas and conversations and thoughts that have been plugged into your mind and your personality beautifully, skillfully puts them all together, sometimes ugly, in a bad way, coined a new word. Those emotions aren't just going to go away. They're, they're like the deep-seated product of your inside life. And Jesus is telling us something. It's okay to pray again. It's okay to repeat. In fact, prayers that are very emotional, prayers that are very emotional tend to be repetitive, not vain repetitions, not magical prayers trying to get the right slogan word that will get the genie to do his thing. But when you're really exercised about something, tell me, when you've been really exercised about something, some of the kids that are here today, when you really feel strongly about something, you really want it, don't you ask your mom and dad about it again and again and again and again and again. Moms and dads, do they ever do that? That's a motive. It's one of the natures of our emotions. When we're really emotionally involved, we tend to say the same thing again. And isn't it great to know our Heavenly Daddy if his son did it with him? And God didn't go, I heard you the first time, son. Handle it. We can't do it another way, just handle it. See, that's the way a lot of you think God is. That's the way your relationship with God is. You think God is kind of like your own dad, who might have been short. And when you told him something, there wasn't any feeling there. He didn't even hear the emotion that you were saying. And he just went right on reading the paper and you said, well, I guess I need to handle it all by myself. And so you went out and you buckled up and you were really strong and you tried to hold your act together. Isn't it great to know you have a heavenly daddy who's not like that at all? He really feels for you. He really knows what you're going through. 
And he didn't reprimand his son. This is the son. He said, this is my beloved son, and I am well pleased in him. So you're on safe ground following the example of the Son of God. So today, as you think about your own prayer life, and you've got some things that you're really emotionally burdened about, and you've prayed about them over and over again, it's okay. The Son of God did that. Now here comes the hard part. But thy will be done. Thy will be done. You see, that's the cruncher. You know why? In order to pray, Father, this is how I feel about it. I don't want to go through with it. I don't want to face that hard time. I don't want to go through that pain. And you're really honest about all that and just pour it out to God. And then God says, no, you're going to face the hard time. It's so hard to pray, thy will be done. You know why it's hard? Because it has to do with one of the most fundamental foundational realities of our life. It's who do you trust? The whole question in your life is who do you trust? And we're going to talk more about that in a minute, but I want to talk to you about the friends. You see, some of you say, well, Dave, you talk about this family stuff, and I've gone through some really intense times, and I called upon some friends, and you know what? They fell asleep. They didn't call me. They didn't get in touch with me. When I really needed them, they didn't come through. And so I've had it with this Christianity stuff. It doesn't work. It doesn't come through. Christians are some of the worst people I know because they pretend they're going to really be there and then sometimes they're not. Well, I want you to look carefully at Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was the Son of God. He was the Son of God and he cried out to his Father to deliver him. He was open and honest with his friends, and he came back, and he found Peter, James, and John. Remember, they're going to become the foundation pillars of the Christian church. I mean, these are the really intense, sharp guys. These are the guys that Jesus poured three years of his life into. Man, they are the cream of the crop. If Jesus was going to say, Heavenly Father, I want to show you what I did here on earth, I produced Peter, James, and John in three years of discipleship ministry. Here they are, and the spotlight comes on. <laughs> Snoring at night. Now, that's really encouraging, isn't it? You know, you asked your friends. I mean, you're, you're crying. Great drops of blood are flowing. I mean, this is one of the most intense moments in the history of humanity. And what's happening? The disciples are sleeping. Isn't that what we're like? Have your friends ever done that to you? So Jesus said, fooey on this. I'm not going to save the human race. They're a bunch of sleepers. They're a bunch of lazy you-know-whats. They're worthless. Heavenly Father, I know there is another plan. Exit me off planet Earth. You know, beam me up. See, he had the power to do that, but he didn't. You see, if you feel that Christians have let you down and you've decided, well, I'm not going to follow Christ, Christians let you down. Your own Savior faced the rejection of his friends. And remember, these same friends, just a few weeks later, were willing to risk their lives for devotion to this Savior. That's the way human beings are. You see, one minute they're all asleep and they totally blow it. Suddenly, though, they respond to grace and the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they do unbelievable things. Which side are you going to believe? Are you going to quit when they're sleeping? Every one of you that wants to go in the ministry, if you're contemplating going in the ministry and you want to work with people, you need to listen to this lesson very well. 
Because a whole lot of people say, I want to really work with people. And I really want to minister Christ to them. And I, I really want to see the Lord use me in their life. And then the people fall asleep. You see, even while I'm preaching, I poured my life getting ready to speak to you this morning. And I come up here and I just try to really pour it out to you and teach you. But I guarantee you, nobody right now, I can't see anybody, so I'll use it. Somebody will fall asleep. It's guaranteed. And that's why some of you have probably been in a church service where the preacher just really got, he just got angry. So would you wake up? I learned not to do that. Because usually I found out later that the guy had been up for two weeks straight working shift work. And it was just a miracle of the grace of God that he stumbled in the front door of the church and he's saying, Lord, I just love you. I just need to be with God's people. But he's just so blooming tired. He just can't handle it. I've learned not to get uptight about that. So if you want to sleep, Get your neighbor to nudge you a little bit. But that's what friends do. They tend to fall asleep. And Jesus says something very important. You've heard the phrase, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Aren't you glad you have a savior? Jesus didn't come back and clunk all these guys in the head, you know, with a billy stick. And said, you guys wake up. He tried to wake them up. They fell asleep three times. And finally, the third time Jesus came back and says, all right, just sleep. And then the tempter came. But I want to share with you something. Because those three guys fell asleep, they couldn't handle the time of testing. Now, it wasn't the end of the story of grace in their life, but the story of grace and the story of wonder and what these men became doesn't cover up the fact that when the tempter came, they did everything wrong, and they turned tail and ran after Peter tried to kill a guy. And then Peter goes on, sleeping Peter goes on, and denies the Lord. You know why? Because he fell asleep. Now, the amazing story of grace is the Lord reached down and forgave him. The Lord does that with us. But if Peter were speaking to this, here this morning, he was saying, please learn the disciplines of godliness. Learn to stay awake. And I want to share something with you. There's a whole lot of teaching about religion as being like a passive meditation. Some of your friends in college are all into the Eastern thing. And the idea is you kind of meditate and you put your mind in neutral. In essence, you kind of fall asleep. You go into a trance. I want you to notice in this passage a very major difference between mysticism in the Eastern sense and transcendental meditation and all the meditation techniques. Have you ever heard of relaxing techniques? How many of you have ever tried to use prayer as a relaxing technique? Now, if you were honest, I'm sure you would say, when you can't go to sleep at night, what do you do? You pray. And I remember when I was a kid, they used to say, well, then Satan will put you to sleep. And I, you know, I remember that was supposed to be good teaching. You know, when you can't go to sleep at night, pray, Satan will put you to sleep. That theology is pretty messed up, I think, right? But it tells us something about the way we think about prayer. Prayer is intensely active in a Christian sense. And I want us to grow in this. You see, if you learn to really talk to the Father, it'll be one of the most active, one of the most strong activities that you're ever a part of. It's not an activity that you sleep in. And that's what we need to learn. Jesus was not falling asleep. And you see, you're used to religion putting you to sleep. In fact, some of you have been raised going to sleep whenever you do something religious. 
And the guys that are like me, we tend to emphasize it because we tend to get a special jargon, a special language, special tone of voice, and even the tone of voice sometimes starts to be a perfect ingredient to put you to sleep. But when people find the reality of Jesus, when they learn what it really means to pray, if Peter, James, and John would have opened their eyes to realize what was happening, they would have intensely prayed. And that's what we need to learn from their example. We can learn from their positive examples. We can learn now from a negative example. And we need to let the Holy Spirit renew our spirits and learn to pray actively. That's how you make it in a time of trial. It's how you get through it, by active, concerted prayer together with believers. But Peter, Jane, and John fell asleep, and therefore they weren't ready. We need to be aware that biblical prayer in Christ is active and alert. We need to realize that prayer is not a relaxing technique. We must stay alert in the crisis so that we can pray and help one another. I want you to think about that. We must stay awake and allure and alive so that we can pray and help one another. It will not work to deny the intense reality of the fear and pain. That's what I've been trying to get across to you so far. If you really learn to experience life, and you're not afraid to experience how you feel, and you really get involved with somebody, and it's okay to cry. Some of you say, well, Dave, I feel so uncomfortable when I go to someone that's undergoing intense suffering. I feel so guilty. I just feel like I'm, I feel like I'm out of place. Those are all feelings that almost everybody has. Don't let it keep you from praying with a person in crisis. And a lot of your fear and a lot of your desire not to go is denial. You're afraid somehow. You see, if I go near that person that's suffering with a terminal illness, maybe it'll rub off on me. I've got news for you. That's not true. In fact, you'll find tremendous healing for your own life. Because the Holy Spirit is especially near to people that are going through the test. You can't deny it. There's some of you that you've dealt with some things when you were little. Maybe you faced an intense crisis when you were young. And you couldn't get it all together. You couldn't understand it. So what you did is you ran away. And you've kept running away from the point of crisis. Every time you face it in life, you pretend like it's not there. Now, you might not be sleeping physically, but you're sleeping personally. You're not there for the people that need you. And I want to use the methods today and the example of Jesus to try to help you to face death and to face pain and to face the suffering of this planet right in the face and not run away, but be there actively praying, seeking to help. Now, Jesus went on and he prayed, thy will be done. And that rate is the final thing I want to share with you today. What happens, and here we have the Son of God. You say, Dave, what you've taught us as we anticipate a time of testing, even before we anticipate it, it's very healthy for us. Heavenly Father, I'm like the Marine. I know that you've prepared me. I know I'm ready for war, but I'm not pridefully hungering for hand-to-hand combat with the evil one. Very important. Be very careful of believers that seem to be hungry for hand-to-hand combat with the enemy. And they seem to be intrigued by it. The Bible is very, very cautious about this spiritual conflict. We are going to talk about the fact that Satan wants to use what God wants to use as a test 
Satan wants to use as a temptation. And a lot of times, those are the same circumstances in life. But this morning, I want to close with, a, with one of the most difficult ideas there is. What do you do when all the circumstances around you say, God is not good? You pray to him. You asked him to deliver you. You asked him to heal you. You asked him to take the people that were teasing you or ridiculing you or threatening you away. You asked the Lord in open honesty. You poured out your emotions before him. And he says, no. And you go through a time of testing. You see, the testimony that goes like this. My son was in the hospital as a little boy and became very, very ill. And he had meningitis. And we prayed. And the church family prayed. And the Lord brought healing. And now he's fine. Those are neat testimonies. What happens when you give the same testimony and the Lord says no? And you have to go through a death. And your life is torn right in half. And you can never get the pieces back together again. What do you do then? I want to close with one of the most important ideas that God is working in right now. The Heavenly Father in Heaven, in this conflict with the evil one, sees it in his perfect plan to make us strong, to test us. Remember Genesis 22. All the book of Genesis moves towards Genesis chapter 22 when God says, Abraham... I want you to take the promised son and I want you to sacrifice him. Now I want to ask Abraham, let's have an interview with Abraham. Abraham, what kind of a God do you serve? What kind of a God do you love? And said, oh, he's the creator God. Back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it tells all about his marvelous creation. He's a God of beauty. He's a God of moral integrity. He's the most wondrous, beautiful, heavenly God that's imaginable. And I said, oh, Abraham, what does he want you to do? What's his latest command to you? He wants me to kill my son. He wants you to do what? Yeah, he wants me to kill my son. You told me your God was beautiful. He was good. He was the God of all righteousness. What in the world do you want you to kill your son? He gave you that son. That was the miracle, child. It's all a statement of God's grace. You're telling me God wants you to kill your son? Abraham said, yep. I would say to Abraham, Abraham, I think you've got the wrong God. I think you've got the wrong God. I think you need to trade in the Holy Scriptures. I think you need to, maybe Eastern religion would be a better way to go. You know, maybe you ought to just kind of be an agnostic. You know, maybe you ought to just try to just weasel through life somehow. But don't have a God that tells you to kill your son. A God like that is mean and ugly and cruel. And I want you to really feel the power because this is going to be one of the biggest temptations and one of the biggest tests that you ever face. It's the test of Job, just like it's a test of Abraham. Job was prospering. He was the North Dallas businessman. It was a little bit out in the country. All kinds of blessing. His kids were beautiful. When they came to the Maverick game, everybody turned to look at Job's kids. They were beautiful and handsome. And they were the, they were the envy of all of Texas. Suddenly, all of them get blown away in a tornado. And suddenly, Job, who used to walk into the stadium with his big cowboy hat on, he was about six foot four, and everybody goes, wow, look at him, the epitome of success. Now when you go and see him, you just go, ugh. 
And he's got sores all over him, and they're oozing pus out there. And he's out there in the middle of a, of a pile, scraping these sores. Man, why didn't the guy even get some ointment to put on him? And you turn away, and I say, Job, what kind of a guy do you have? And he would wonder, and I would wonder. And that actually happened. And now we have the Son of God. It's his one and only Son. God is so good, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, his son says, let's not go to Calvary. Let's not go to the cross. Let's not go through the pain. And God says, no, you've got to go through the pain. And I say, the Son of God, what kind of a daddy do you have? What kind of a daddy do you have? And that is the question that every single one of you at some time in your life are going to be asked. It's going to be the biggest assault that's made against your faith and Satan is making that assault against me and against you this morning. When I go into your room and you're suffering and the human standpoint says, doesn't look too good, I begin to wonder, is God good? Is God really kind? Why is there all the pain? Why do bad people prosper and good people die? Why did a cyclone blow thousands of people into eternity? Why? And I can put my fist in God's faith and say, God, you must be bad. And that's the difference between a man of faith and a man of unbelief. The man of faith says, God, I don't understand. I really don't know all that you're about but I've got to make a radical decision. And it's the answer to the question, who will I trust? And I want to tell you something about the rest of the story. Father Abraham went up to sacrifice his son. And the good God of heaven reached down and grabbed the knife and said, no. And he provided a substitute. You know why? Because he loved and Abraham had passed a crucial test. And Abraham had cried out against the kingdom of darkness. And Abraham had shouted at Satan by his life. Satan, I don't worship God just because he's the sugar daddy of heaven. I worship God because he's God. I worship God because he's my savior. He's my friend. He's my creator. And to be honest with you, Satan, if I don't have my God, I don't have anything. So I will obey. And he is good. Even when I don't understand, I'll remember that he is good. There's none of you in him. There's no darkness in him at all. And so God stops the knife. Job, you know where Job is today? Job is in heaven. I had an agnostic college friend that said, man alive, that story reeks. Job loses all of his kids. God replaces them with double the number of kids gives them a new home and everything else, that doesn't replace the kids they lost. You know where Job is right now? In heaven, instead of having just the first set of kids, he's got another set of kids. Because in eternity, God put all the death and all the violence of nature and all the violence of disease behind. And today, if we could picture Job, he would be there in the presence of the good God and now God would have told him about the tremendous conflict between the heavenly kingdom and the evil kingdom that was going on in the book of Job. 
When Satan challenged God and said, you just got an economic relationship with those guys. You give them money and they give you love. You give them blessing, they give you back devotion. You give them health, they give you back praise. It's all just economic. And God says, no, it isn't. Because you don't understand, Satan. It's about love. It's about a choice of love. And Job loves me because of me and because of his commitment to me. And now the good God has solved it. Jesus Christ went to Gethsemane, went to Calvary, faced all the pain. But the flow of life didn't stop. It wasn't just like a video picture that just stopped and froze frame on Calvary. The frame went on and it included the resurrection. But you got to, in order to really experience it, you got to experience Calvary in order to get to the resurrection. Now, where are we this morning? Where are we this morning? Some of us are wrestling with life and death, really. That's where some of you are. Literally, you are facing the reality of death. You know what I find? I find that most of those that are actually facing that are the ones that encourage me. And Satan wants to use the time of crisis to tempt us. And he's used it in some of our lives to tempt us to go away. He tempts me to say, why teach the Bible? Man alive, I teach the Bible, people really respond to it. They just really start to get excited about the Lord and wham, they get clobbered. Maybe we should just go away into neutral territory. There isn't any neutral territory. There is heavenly kingdom territory and satanic territory. You can't get away from the suffering. And it's much better to be in conflict in the kingdom of heaven and with the Father when you don't understand than to be in the darkness asleep thinking everything is fine when it isn't. When Father says no, you're going to face the testing. I close with this. Because your Heavenly Father is good, He promises us it will never take us through a time of testing that we can handle and that won't ultimately work together to make us more like His Son. And He loves us too much to not make us like His Son. And one day in eternity, he'll solve that, that crisis, that tremendous question. Why the pain? Why the death? Why the struggle with the evil one? I don't know the ultimate answer to that question, but it's reality. We are in that struggle. What's the difference between a test and a temptation in closing? Your father will never tempt you. A temptation is to entice you to do wrong. Your heavenly daddy will never put you in a situation where his desire, where what he's trying to cause in your life is a denial of him. Satan wants to do that. We'll talk about that next week. But any trial, any bad circumstance that we face, our Heavenly Father is testing us to prove that he loves us and that we love him. And the crucial issue is, who will I believe is good?